If you have a finance team that's very strong, the folks in sales and R&D and marketing are going to be impressed. Have great talent. Make sure they're adding value. And then when you talk about spend culture, you don't come across as a cop or a police that's trying to police the rest of the firm. Because what they see is this is a function that adds value and they will respect that. Because they respect that, when you talk about cost controls and a cost discipline, they will take it seriously and they'll accept it. Hey, this is Danny, and welcome to the Spend Culture Stories podcast. You know, we're not just another boring finance or procurement podcast. We explore the sometimes challenging stories and learnings when people, spend, and organizations meet, and how to drive sustainable growth while still balancing control and agility. We have vulnerable, honest, and raw conversations with only the most forward-thinking CFOs, finance executives, and procurement leaders who are challenging the status quo, that the way we've done it is just not enough. This is Spend Culture Stories. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Spend Culture Stories. So today I am super excited to welcome a very special guest. His name is Navneet Govil, and he is the Managing Partner and Chief Financial Officer at SoftBank Vision Fund. Hi, Navneet. I'm so glad you can join us today. Hi, Danny. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And, you know, I know SoftBank is um, one of the most well-known VCs out there in the world. So I'm really glad that you can join us and share your expertise, both as, you know, on the VC side of things, but also as a chief financial officer yourself. Happy to. Um, Maybe we can just get started a little bit about, you know, how you got yourself in the world of startups and SoftBank. Sure. I joined SoftBank at the beginning of 2016. Prior to that, I spent over 20 years in a number of different industries, pharmaceutical, high-tech, solar. And it turns out that those were some of the areas where SoftBank had been investing in as a growth equity investor. And actually, when I joined in 2016, uh, we didn't have a vision fund. So I initially joined a team that was doing growth equity investments. And then later, our CEO, Rajiv Mishra, asked me to set up the fund. And uh, that was an incredibly exciting opportunity because it was essentially operating a startup within SoftBank. Yeah, and that's super exciting because you got to kind of see the journey of what companies face and also be a part of their journey as well. Indeed, indeed. Yeah, so I know um, your path to becoming a CFO is quite unique. You know, it's not really like the typical big four accounting firms and you had experiences in many different industries. So how do you think that kind of experience influences um, the finance function at the Vision Fund? So, you know, if we look at uh, funds, uh, all kinds of funds that have been around, you will see that historically the backgrounds of the CFOs at these funds have tend to be accounting driven. A lot of them came from the big four accounting firms or have strong Mm -hmm. accounting backgrounds. And that made sense because the focus Uh, was on ensuring that the limited partners of the funds got accurate reports. There were lots of regulatory filings that need to be made. There are tax and statutory reporting that all of our funds have to do. And my background, as I mentioned, 
Uh, this is basically the first time I'm, I'm working at a fund or a financial institution. Prior to this, my background was working in finance at pharmaceutical, high-tech, solar companies. So I was used to being a business enabler, uh, essentially supporting sales teams and R&D teams accomplish their goals. So with that mindset coming from a, as a finance enabler to coming into a fund, what I did was focus on our key constituents or stakeholders. And broadly speaking, we have three key constituents. One is the limited partners and the general partner. The second is the investing teams that we work with. And then the third is the portfolio companies. And more specifically for me, our portfolio company CFOs. So my focus was how do we help? What can we do to add value to our limited partners? What can we do to add value to our investing teams? And how can we help our portfolio companies leverage the SoftBank ecosystem? And that's really exciting because you get to see um, many different parts of it. And I think it's also quite exciting that you also get to work with the CFOs in your portfolio companies themselves, because you probably get to see um, the way that they operate, how they're evolving, and the processes around that. Indeed, indeed. Um, and I do see that, you know, you were also recently profiled in a recent report um, that talked about how the Vision Fund is raising the bar in finance. And you talk a little bit a lot about um, strategic finance and how you're using technology and moving away from transactional tasks and how other CFOs in your portfolio companies can be doing that as well. Do you mind um, giving a um, summary of that report and the findings there? Yeah, so it was very nice of uh, IHS Market to profile us. And you know, what the uh, case study does for your listeners, it primarily talks about you know what are some of the changes that are happening in finance and private equity in general. Uh, we view ourselves primarily as a growth equity uh, investment firm. And they highlight some of the things that we've done to add value to our stakeholders that I mentioned earlier, also about how we are leveraging technology. But specifically to your point, Danny, about what does strategic finance mean? It's a couple of things. It is adding value to our key stakeholders. And, you know, for me, I would say there are a number of groups of those stakeholders. It's, you know, first and foremost, as a business partner to, to our CEO. So what can I do to help him make insightful decisions? A lot of it is decision support uh, in terms of him making decisions. Then the second thing is our investing teams. What can I and, and the finance team do to help our investing teams make good investment decisions? So some of that is doing portfolio and sector analytics for them. Then the third thing is supporting our portfolio company CFOs, primarily by helping them leverage the SoftBank ecosystem. And then there are the limited partners of the fund. And for them, what we want to do is give them insights into our portfolio company performance and demonstrate to them how we are adding value uh, to our portfolio companies, as well as what's our monetization strategy for our investments. And then the last important stakeholder, I would say, is SoftBank Group. SoftBank itself is a public company, and because it's a public company and the vision funds uh, drive a lot of their earnings, I have to do quarterly earnings with SoftBank Group shareholders and investors. And for them, strategic finance or adding value means providing them with transparency on the performance of the fund, 
and giving them consistent information quarter to quarter, from quarter, you know, one quarter after another, not cherry picking certain information or showing good information, because ultimately with outside shareholders and investors, they want to see trend consistency. So they, there's that trust relationship where they feel they can invest in the stock long term. Those are really good insights. And I think with a lot of, you know, in-house CFOs, they already have a lot of trouble and sometimes challenges when dealing with so many stakeholders. But I can imagine as the CFO of a fund and also working with a lot of, you know, other external stakeholders, this becomes also quite a challenge. Um, with all the reporting that you've been doing, because um, you mentioned the word a lot, transparency and visibility, how are you using technology to be able to achieve this? And what advice do you have for other CFOs when it comes to managing stakeholder relations? Yeah, Danny, I'll give you two examples of where we're leveraging technology. Uh, one is robotic process automation. And we have one of our portfolio companies called Automation Anywhere that is in this space. So what we've done is we've been using their bots, uh, bots, which is short for robots, to essentially automate a lot of the manually intensive tasks. So one of the areas where we do that is in processing invoices, reviewing and processing vendor invoices. Another is the whole, you know, procure to pay and treasury process where it's streamlining a lot of payments and automating payments. So that's one area where we're leveraging technology, which is robotic process automation. The second one, is uh, which this IHS market study highlighted, we have an, we built an in-house web-based tool called FinSight. So what it does is the idea is to make it a tool both for our investing teams as well as our limited partners. So for instance, we input an, a lot of information about our portfolio companies boatloads of data that is automatically uploaded, and then we drive a number of analysis. For instance, we have liquidity analysis. What's the cash runway on each of our portfolio companies, which then informs us on when they need to raise a round, when they need to raise capital, how can we be supportive of them in that? The second thing we do is public market analysis. So for every uh, portfolio company that we've invested in, and they're all private companies for the most part at the time we've invested in them. Who are their public company peers and how do their financials and business models and valuations compare with those public company peers? And that information is very valuable to our investing teams. It's also helps us in doing our quarterly valuations of those companies. The third thing that we track in this FinSight tool, web-based tool, is the performance of our portfolio companies versus the underwriting case. When our investing teams originally made the investment, they had certain assumptions or projections for the growth of the company, the financials. We then look at actual performance and compare it to the underwritten case. Another tool that we have in this FinSight uh, web-based tool is sector analysis, where for various sectors that we invest in, we look at the various business models, and market structure, which again informs our investing teams on what some of the trends are, and it informs them on where they should make follow-on investments or new investments. So those are, I would say, two examples, the robotic process automation 
and the FinSight web-based tool, which has a lot of data science on our portfolio companies and the market. Wow, that seems to be a very comprehensive solution that gives you a lot of insights on that. I don't know if any other company would be able to have access to that kind of data, but I guess it really makes sense since you manage so many different portfolio companies. And speaking of, you know, portfolio companies, what do you look for in a SoftBank, a vision fund portfolio company? There are lots of, a couple of things I would say, but, you know, some of the four main ones are a lot of our investments, while broadly speaking, are in the technology space. We are primarily investing in the artificial intelligence revolution. So we're looking to invest in companies that are using AI or leveraging AI. So that's one. The second thing is we're looking for ambitious founders who are passionate about delighting their customers. The third is we want to invest in companies that are addressing or have large addressable markets. And finally, what's most important is that all of these companies need to have a path to profitability because we're late stage growth equity investors and a lot of these companies within a couple of years of us investing in them are going to access the public markets. So there has to be a path to profitability where they're building a sustainable business. Got it. And how do you determine how much to invest in a company? What are the things that you look for? Yeah, a lot of it depends on each individual company. It depends on what are some of the near-term milestones that they're looking to accomplish and how much capital they would need to scale globally, you know, initially geographically, whether if, if they're a U.S.-based company, how they, do they scale within the U.S.? And then longer term, how do they scale outside of the U.S.? So it's really the company's needs to achieve their near-term two to three-year milestones, as well as what's needed for them to scale. Yeah, that is great to know. And um, I know that uh, last year has been quite a hard year for many businesses. And I would love to hear from your perspective, um, from speaking to portfolio companies and also within your own experience. How did they respond to the pandemic with a lot of um, budgets being cut and, I guess, personnel having to be reallocated? Yeah, I mean, it, it has indeed been a tough year. And, you know, we're still in the pandemic. And, uh, you know, Part of it is we you know, started counseling a lot of our portfolio companies in 2019 before the pandemic started. We started emphasizing the point about focus on unit economics and path to profitability. So then when the pandemic hit in 2020, a lot of those companies had conserved a lot of cash. They had raised money from funding rounds and they had significant cash runways. So, so they were able to uh, withstand the uh, economic downturn. At the same time, because our founder, Masayoshi Son, as, and we refer to him as Masa, you know, his vision about AI revolution and investing in companies that are leveraging AI meant that we were investing in companies that were benefiting from some of these tailwinds that came as a result of the pandemic. For instance, most of us have, are working from home. Our children are studying from home. We do online shopping. We've been taking advantage of online entertainment as a result of the pandemic. And what that means is that our investments in e-commerce, entertainment, healthcare, online education, food delivery, 
and the future of work have benefited. You know, two good examples are DoorDash in food delivery has done very well. They had a really good IPO recently and the stock continues to do well. Another investment we made was in ByteDance, which has the TikTok app. As you can imagine, a lot of people uh, use that for entertainment. So a lot of our companies, number one, they had that focus on unit economics and path to profitability so that conserved enough cash and had the cash runway to get through the pandemic. And then secondly, we benefited by having invested in some of these areas that are benefiting from the acceleration of the digital shifts. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of very recognizable brands within the portfolio, which is really exciting. I know I've used TourDash way too many times <laughs> during the pandemic. So it's really exciting that you you guys had a vision um, since the beginning of time and even moving past the pandemic. You know, these businesses are still thriving within the technology in the space. So just curious, um, within the CFOs of the portfolio companies, how could um, they work better with the founders in startups to scale a startup? Yeah. So, you know, having been in finance at a number of companies over the past uh, 25 years, I can relate to the role of a CFO in a company, whether it's a startup or a more established company. And, you know, the biggest challenge is CFOs have a natural tendency to focus on, you know, maintaining a cost discipline, uh, controlling costs, not getting too far ahead until they see the revenues materialize. But what they, we all need to recognize is, you know, finance or CFOs saying no is not always the right answer. What we need to do is to be enabling our business partners, whether it's enabling the CEOs, founders, the sales teams, the R&D teams. And in order to enable them, what we need to ask is, hey, what's the objective? What are you trying to achieve? What's the problem that you're trying to solve? Are you trying to scale globally? You want to open offices in other areas? Do you want to launch multiple products? Are you trying to increase market share? And all of those things, and then find out what's the best way to enable that in in, in a way that creates value for the company. And it's ultimately creating you know, positive cash flows uh, for the shareholders and the investors. So it's not just about, you know, sometimes there's a tendency to say, no, we're being uh, too aggressive here. We, we can't do this. But what we really need to do is to partner with them on finding a solution. And it could be in a more disciplined manner. It could be based on when they achieve certain milestones that certain funding happens. I love that. I love how it's a collaboration. And, you know, um, I think that finance is often seen as kind of the bad guy, as you mentioned, saying no to things, rejecting purchases, rejecting budgets. But really, I think it's part of the process, right? And uh, many startups face the challenge of staying agile, making the right decisions quickly, but also balancing that control. So how do you think as a CFO, you can find that balance of, you know, still having the control, but be making sure you're still making quick decisions and moving forward? Yeah, I think it, it really comes down to two things. As you said, Danny, I think part of it is control. It's finding the right balance. It's, and you know, by control, we mean things like closing books on time, ensuring there are no material weaknesses or deficiencies, all the 10Ks and Qs when the companies become pri- uh, public are filed timely. They're, whether if it's a US company, they're Sarbanes-Oxley controls are all in order, those types of things. 
So that's important. That's sort of like the table stakes. But then the other part is, in, and here at the Vision Fund, we refer it to nail it and scale it, which is first get the unit economics right uh, for a business. And that means that the business model must work on a unit economic basis. And then you scale it. Sometimes you know people think, okay, I'm not profitable today because I'm not selling enough. I don't have enough units. But once we dramatically increase the number of units by orders of magnitude, there'll be economies of scale and we'll become profitable. We need to gain market share. But I think the key thing is to recognize that you need to get the unit economics right. If the unit economics work, then you scale it. And that's why we refer to it as nail it and scale it. And I think you know, for CFOs and others, that's the key, which is we want to focus on the control, the table stakes, which is doing basic accounting and finance right, but then enabling our businesses, our business partners, by helping them think about how they can nail it and scale it. I love that framework. I think um, a lot of companies tend to do the other way around where they're like, okay, well, does the scale, but I think you're you're saying start with the foundations, starting with the unit economics, and then it will scale later on. Indeed. That's amazing. Thank you for your insights on that. And um, this is something that I know a lot of our listeners have been wondering, and we've talked to quite a few CFOs that have done IPOs, but from your perspective, as part of like the portfolio companies, how do you determine the right exit strategy for your portfolio companies? And I guess for the companies that are looking to go public, what do they need to prepare for this journey? Yeah. So I think it's a, it's a couple of different things. One is, you know, all the accounting and the controls aspect that they need to get right, which is uh, closing books on time, making sure uh, their Sarbanes-Oxley controls are in order, there are no deficiencies, weaknesses, things of that nature. The other thing is building a business that is going to be attractive to institutional and public investors. So they may not be profitable today, but they need to have a path to profitability. So this is where the portfolio companies need to think about how can they demonstrate that path to profitability to their public investors. The other thing is building a a sustainable business model. They need to think about where do they see the company five, 10 years from now and being able to lay the groundwork for that so it can be a sustainable business enterprise in five to 10 years. Then from a finance standpoint, what the CFOs need to do is think about as a public company, there's a lot of focus on the short-term performance of the company. They have to report results on a quarterly basis, and they're going to be measured on a quarterly basis. And one of the things that I used to do when I used to work at public companies was this concept of beat and raise, which is every quarter you have to beat the performance that you set for the quarter and then raise the target for next quarter's performance. So they need to establish that track record, at least have four to five quarters where they're beating their internal plans on a quarterly basis and then raising the targets for the coming quarters. That becomes important as they become public because, again, it it comes down to having public investors trusting 
the performance of the company and and seeing that they can count on the performance of the company and they have that level of trust with the CEO and the CFO. So what are the major milestones to get there? If you were to say it, let's say in step one, step two, step three. Yeah, I think a lot of that is having that visibility to the company's performance beyond a certain quarter. So, you know, do you have visibility to the pipeline of revenue contracts? Do you have visibility to the backlog? If you are a SaaS business, a software as a service business where you have a recurring revenue business model, a lot of your revenue for the coming quarter is essentially determined because you have these contracts where there's recurring revenue. But even if it's not a recurring revenue business, just having visibility to backlog. The other is having that visibility to costs and looking at costs in terms of fixed costs and variable costs. So you want to have a cost structure where if things don't go well on the revenue side, you can turn the dial down on the variable costs. So I think understanding the cost structure and having that visibility on uh, the revenue backlog is important because that allows you to plan for the future and provide that level of certainty in terms of future guidance when you become a public company. Thank you, Navni. These are really valuable insights. I've actually never heard of the very specific parts that you have to prepare for. So this is the first time hearing it from a uh, portfolio CFO, like someone who manages multiple portfolios, which is really insightful. So for the companies that do not want to go public, um, how could they determine the best way forward? I know there's, for example, you know, mergers, acquisitions, um, what are some other ways that they can exit and how do you determine the right strategy for that? Yeah. And, you know, ultimately the strategy for a company, whether it's to go public, remain private or potentially get acquired or merge with another company, that's a decision for the company to make. It's a, for the management team and the board of that company to make. And one of the things we do is give the portfolio company CFOs the opportunity to leverage the SoftBank ecosystem. And what I mean by that is meeting other companies in our portfolio. So talking to an Uber about, hey, how did you decide to go public? Or talking to Slack and saying, why did you choose to do a direct listing versus a traditional IPO? Or talking to DoorDash about, you know, how did you decide to go public? Why did you go public in 2020? Why didn't you do it earlier? Why didn't you do it later? What was the right time? So for us, a lot of it is giving our portfolio companies the opportunity to learn or to benefit from the experiences of other portfolio companies. So in finance, one of the things I do and again, this was something that the IHS uh, study had highlighted, is we conduct an annual CFO conference. We call it FinConnect, where we bring all of our portfolio company CFOs together. And, you know, number one, they can network with one another. Number two, we have a number of different sessions where people talk about, okay, what are the different ways of going public, whether it's a SPAC, a direct listing, a traditional IPO. Why did, for instance, one of our portfolio companies, Flipkart, decide to get acquired by Walmart? What was the thinking there rather than going public? So there's that forum for them to share ideas, learn best practices. And also we have some of our leading banks that are part of the SoftBank 
that work with us uh, at SoftBank are key banking partners. We bring them so that our portfolio companies can get access to them and can work with them. Because a lot of these portfolio companies, when they're in their initial stages, you know, they don't have access to the bulge bracket banks. They go to some of the smaller banks, a regional bank or a smaller local bank that helps them with cash management. But we have access, because we're at SoftBank, have access to some of the larger banks, global banks, that can provide a lot of expertise uh, to these portfolio companies. So these FinConnect or CFO conferences that we organize provides our portfolio companies with a lot of these benefits. And that's where they get to get ideas and advice from many different people. I love that. I think having like the community ecosystem is so important. And I know for a lot of um, finance leaders that find themselves in a startup early on, uh, they don't really have the experience to take the startup to the next level. For example, like a series A based startup is very different from like a series B and series C. And sometimes that's when they start looking, you know, instead of just being a head of finance for an actual CFO that has the experience to take the, um, the company public or to exit. So having that ecosystem is so valuable for the people there. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. Um, and for the listeners that want to learn more about the IHS report, I'll make sure to link that in the description box below. So don't worry about searching for it. Um, I'll make sure to include that link. So Nandi, on to the next question that I have for you here. Um, we talked a lot about, you know, your portfolio companies and how, you know, SoftBank has a vision for investing in a lot of AI. So what do you think are some emerging technologies that you think can transform the finance function of startups in the near future? I think it's a couple of things. One is uh, robotic uh, process automation. And I talked about how we've been leveraging that from one of our portfolio companies, Automation Anywhere. The other is, you know, there's, I talked about this other internal web-based tool that we developed, FinSight, where we have a lot of data science on our portfolio companies, as well as the markets and the industries. The other thing is cloud-based uh, finance applications. So I think you know the focus has to shift from having on-premise software applications. You know, like in the past, people had you know general ledgers that were you know customized general ledgers that were on-premise systems. Now, you know, we for instance use a cloud-based uh, general ledger. We have a bunch of other cloud-based systems that we use. So. I would say those are some of the emerging technologies. It's uh, you know robotic process automation, cloud-based finance applications, and certain data science platforms. Thank you so much for your insights there. And this is one question um, that I like to discuss to all guests. Um, you know, the name of the podcast is Spend Culture Stories because we believe that you know culture kind of drives a company forward when it comes to the momentum and um, attracting talent. But Spend Culture is kind of you know it comes from the top top-down, and it comes from the finance function. So Navni, in your opinion, how does finance influence the spend culture of an organization, and how can they empower also the employees to be able to be more accountable towards the spend? Yeah, so I think it's a couple of things. First and foremost, uh, and you know, my focus here, you mentioned this earlier, Danny, is at the SoftBank Vision Fund, I had the opportunity to build the finance team from scratch. I hired you know, we, we initially only had a handful of people, and today we have a finance team of about 50 or so. 
I think first and foremost is hiring great talent. We've hired you know amazing talent. We've been fortunate to have some great talent uh, join us. And that does a couple of things. When you have great talent, you know they will we talked about you know how do you move from you know move to strategic finance, value added finance. You know smart people are going to automate routine tasks and they're going to want to focus their energies on value added work. The other thing is if you have smart people, they will represent you well with your limited partners, they're going to represent you well with your portfolio companies. They're going to represent you well with the investing uh, teams. And, you know, I'm saying this in the context of a fund, but it applies in in a portfolio company as well. If you have a finance team that's very strong, the folks in sales and R&D and marketing are going to be impressed. So I think that's one, which is have great talent, make sure they're adding value. And then when you talk about spend culture, you don't come across as a cop or a police that's trying to police the rest of the firm, because what they see is this is a function that adds value and they will respect that because they respect that. When you talk about cost controls and a cost discipline, they will take it seriously and they'll accept it. We all have to do the right thing from a fiduciary standpoint and be prudent when we're spending shareholders' money as a portfolio company or for us when we're spending our investors' or limited partners' money. But that message of the spend culture is well-received when you have a strong team that's adding value to the rest of the firm. I love that perspective. Like It starts with the people, um, as you mentioned, right? And making sure that everyone is aligned to the values and making sure they're understanding why you are making the decisions for what they are. Thank you for your insights on that. Of course. And I know um, we're nearing the end of the interview here. So here's my last question. It's going to be a fun one. Um, So if you had a billboard um, that described you as a person, what do you think it would say? That's a tough question, Danny. Here at at SoftBank and at the the Vision Tough Fund, I've been here for five years. I've been very fortunate to have, uh, you know, been part of uh, the journey, building the infrastructure, setting up the processes, hiring people in finance. I feel I have a responsibility to uh, the 50 or so people we have in finance, a responsibility for their career development to ensure that they do well. I feel that I have a responsibility for laying the groundwork for the success of the funds for decades to come. I will probably not be around for many more decades, but to set the foundation upon which uh, others can come and continue to add value. Uh, so I would say that those are uh, two of the things that come to mind. And that's really wonderful. And I think um, the type of companies that SoftBank has invested in, they're definitely companies that will stand the last of time just based on you know how the world is moving today. And I think that's a really beautiful thing. Thank you. I also wanted to say within your portfolio companies, uh, Pair Therapeutics, um, I believe, actually works with Procurify. So that's also a really interesting insight there. Yes, indeed. Well, thank you so much, Navneet, for your time today. Um, I personally learned so much more about SoftBank's ecosystem and also a lot of great advice that you have for CFOs on the show today. I enjoyed speaking with you, Danny. Thanks for having me. All right. And that's the end of our episode today. Um, If you would like to connect with Navneet, I will make sure to include his LinkedIn profile here and also a link to learn more about SoftBank. Tune in um, next week for our next episode and we'll see you next time. 
Thanks for tuning in to another episode of today. If you like this podcast, please make sure to subscribe so you don't miss another great guest. We'd also appreciate it if you give us a five-star review on iTunes for the Apple listeners out there. This podcast is sponsored by Procurify, a spend management solution that is making managing business spend simple. I know there's still a lot of you that are using spreadsheets, credit cards, and expense forms, or a mix of the above. Perhaps you're still using a procurement module in your ERP that is clunky and outdated. Procurify helps you implement proactive controls so that purchases are tracked and approved by the right person before it hits accounts payable. Never have to worry about a surprise invoice ever again. There's a reason why over 400 customers around the world love us. Our award-winning, easy-to-use system is loved by people everywhere. It's actually a purchasing system that your employees will actually want to use, believe it or not. Check us out at Procurify.com, so that's www.procurify.com, and mention the podcast for a sweet listener special on our packages.